Good evening, everyone. And thank you, Mark and Ruth and Richard, Amy, Johnny, Chris, uh, for leading us so helpfully this evening. I kind of almost feel as if I'm about to get in the way, but, uh, but thank you for how you've led us tonight on Palm Sunday evening. If you were here last week, uh, I mentioned these little uh, books, Finding a Personal Rule of Life, and a number of you ordered a copy, and so I've got them with me tonight. And so if you ordered a copy, you can pick it up as long as you give me your four pounds. If you were here last week and you forgot to order a copy, I do have a, a couple of extra ones. Or if you weren't here last week and you would like a little copy of this, then uh, speak to me afterwards and I'll, I'll arrange for a copy. But this is what we have been doing here at Windsor on Sunday evenings for a few months now. We've been looking at and thinking about the importance and, and value of a rule of life. And what we've been saying throughout this series is that a, a rule of life is a support structure. It's, it's a bit like a trellis in that it's a support structure that enables upward growth and facilitates the production of fruit in our Christian lives. And so to to have a personal rule of life is about being intentional in nurturing and developing our our spiritual lives. It's about training wisely. That's something we looked at on the first week. It's about establishing certain rhythms and uh, patterns into our daily and weekly lives that kind of foster greater depth to our Christian lives and increased Christ-like living. And so really what we've been saying is having a rule of life, something very practical, but it's also a great idea. And so we have been identifying and thinking, well, what are some of the things that you should have as part of a personal rule of life? And so far we've thought about prayer, about Bible reading, about Sabbath, We've also looked at the importance of family and friends, the kind of people that journey with us, companions and soulmates. And then last week, we thought about how we need to honor God with our bodies, which are a gift, and that we need to take care of them. And also, we thought last week about the value of play, of of recreation, of leisure, of having fun. And and I hope lots of you have been able to just have fun this week. Tonight, we're going to think about money. Money. And the question, I suppose, is why, why does this need to be written into a personal rule of life? Well, and we've said this on a number of occasions, money and our attitude towards it and the way we handle money is such a core discipleship issue. Jesus talked about money more than any other social theme because he fully understood its power and its potential to to kind of mess with our heads and our hearts, which is why he he pointed out on, on more than one occasion that money can become a rival God. It was in his day. And it still is in ours. Maybe even more so whenever we find ourselves living in this strongly aggressive, consumerist, materialistic, cultural environment. And so Jesus highlights a danger. It was a danger then, still a danger today. And he made it really clear, and we'll set this phrase in context in a moment, but he made it really clear that no one can serve two masters. 
either you will hate one, or sorry, you either you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And speaking along similar lines in another gospel, that, that quote there is from Luke, but in another gospel in Matthew, he said that where your treasure is, that's where you'll find your heart. That's where you locate your heart. Because what we do with money not only reveals the priorities in our lives, but it can also determine the affections of our heart. And therefore, according to Jesus, listen, it can become a competing God. It can become an idol. And so this is not only a relevant and topical issue for every Christian disciple and follower of Jesus, but it is, I think, a vital issue to think about in terms of writing a rule of life. Because our choices and decisions regarding money and finances can have a profound effect on our upward growth and on our fruitful living. As someone has written, like a charismatic lover, money has the power to win our allegiance, the pull to make us lean on it for security, and the capacity to convince us of its promises. Money is powerful. It's alluring. It's intoxicating. It's also dangerous. Money makes the world go round, but as one headline I read this week asked, at what cost? At what cost? And if we're not careful and, and disciplined about money and our approach to it, it won't just make the world revolve, but it will send our heads and hearts spinning in all kinds of less than helpful directions. And so as Christians, we do need to consider this subject carefully. Martin Luther, German church reformer, apparently said, that when we are converted to Christ, we undergo go three conversions. The conversion of our heart, the conversion of our mind, and the conversion of our wallets. But as we think about what we might actually write in, because as I said, and I'm trying to keep saying this time and time, we are talking about physically writing out a rule of life. But as we think about, well, what am I going to write into a rule of life regarding my attitude and approach to money? Let me go back to that critical st statement and warning that Jesus issued in Luke's gospel and let me give you his full quote. So Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So what Jesus is really saying is, get this wrong, get this out of sync. And it seems you'll come on stuck spiritually, relationally. Now Luke 16, 13 is one of those, if you like, big standalone verses. I mean, it's, it's, it's sometimes very dangerous to kind of lift verses out of context, but, but Luke 16, 13 is one of those that I think just stands by itself and issues a striking challenge. Human beings have always had a hard time handling money. Money tends to handle us. We can't live without it, but lots of people, it would seem, can't live with it either. It easily begins to dictate, or it can control us, and therefore, as a result, there is an inherent spiritual danger associated with it that comes with it. Money can distort our thinking and our decisions. 
It can become the be-all and end-all. The reason we work. The thing that determines our outlook. Affects our sleep. Our worry levels. In and of itself, and we know this, money's not evil. But the love of it can play havoc with our souls. Whenever money becomes an object of affection, whenever the pursuit of it takes over, then our worship's compromised and we end up worshiping the created rather than the creator. God has got to be number one in our lives. And that command and guideline for life, although originally written in stone, we all know needs to be written large in our hearts. No other gods before me. Money can so easily become the God that occupies the wrong place and and therefore the need to maintain a proper perspective is one of the very real challenges of Christian discipleship. But it's not easy. It's not easy. It never has been. It never will be. And so it's not surprising then that, that I think Jesus speaks so much about this subject. As I say, maybe more so than a whole lot of others. So the question we have got to ask is this. Where does our love and loyalty lie? Because it's either or it can never be both and in this context. Now, although Luke 16, 13 is, as I say, a big standalone verse, it, it does, and I do want to set it in context, it does conclude a, a, a chunk of teaching. It comes at the end of a parable, one of the most puzzling that Jesus ever shared. We've often defined parables as mini dramas in picture language, which is a relatively simple definition. I like simple. A A mini drama in picture language. But let me give you a broader definition, still one of the best I think that's out there, came from C.H. Dodd, who came up with this kind of definition back in the 1950s. A parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. And if there ever was an arresting parable that teases your mind into active thought, it's this one here that we find in Luke 16. And and we have looked at it before in, in 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 a different context and as part of another series. And so what I want to do just for the last part of tonight is not just speak about money as a kind of thematic issue and draw on various texts or passages from Scripture, but I want to, in a sense, earth it in one specific biblical text, and I want to take this parable and use it as a kind of launch pad. And so if you do have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Luke 16? It's page 1050 in the Pew Bibles. And let's stand together and and listen to this very interesting, intriguing, confusing story that Jesus told. 
And note from the start of this parable that, that, that Jesus tells this to his disciples, but it's really important to know that there's other people listening in. And, and we'll discover that later on as, as, we, as we hear the story. So verse one, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will come, will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Halved it. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. I have no idea what the fraction is there. <laughs> Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Take a seat. So, what is that all about? Well, it, as I've said, it's a parable that has created a, a lot of head scratching and a lot of angst. And Bible commentators have written a lot about it and come to various conclusions. But as we look at it this evening, and as we think about a personal rule of life, what I want to do is kind of identify and isolate three things. Three things that, that are kind of implied in here. Now please hear that they're kind of implied in here. I, I'm taking these three things out of here for different reasons. This is not me like uh, going through this in any great detail and lifting these out. It's very dangerous to do that with parables, with stories. Sometimes they just have one main point. But let me just isolate three things that I think we can take from this story about how we handle money. That when it comes to it, we need to be three things. We need to be smart, we need to be generous, and we need to be responsible or we need to be trustworthy. So let's, let's take a closer look. And right at the start, we must affirm 
that Jesus was 100% honest. That's a given. Jesus upheld God's values without compromise. It's important we just say that because when it comes to Jesus commending someone who was dishonest, what do we, how do we process that? So Jesus begins this parable by telling us there's a manager who's been wasting the possessions of his master. And so anyone would assume that once the manager finds out or once the master finds out what this manager's doing, he's going to be fired straight away. No questions asked. But he isn't. Now, he is given his marching orders, but it seems he's allowed to work his notice, which is a little strange under the circumstances. And during the period of his notice, the manager fiddles the books. And so he goes out and he reduces the amount of money that people owe his boss. He writes off a pile of debt. And he does it for personal reasons. And so you would assume, well, once, once the master finds out what his manager is doing during his period of notice, sure he's gonna, surely he's going like, to be incredibly angry and send them packing immediately. But no, verse 8. The master commends his dishonest manager, saying, you've been shrewd. And this is one of the reasons why, as I say, lots of people are confused about it. What, what sort of example is this Jesus that you seem to be teaching? This guy didn't only waste his employer's possessions, right at the start of the parable, Jesus tells us that, but he then embezzles from him. And then Jesus turns around and says, you've been prudent. You've been shrewd. Are you suggesting, Jesus, that we should ever do that? Or anything like, remotely like that? It's a conundrum. But let me offer not so much a way around it, but one helpful explanation of it. And it is based on what is said in verse 8. You see, it seems that Jesus identifies the manager's behavior as typical of people of this world. And then he implies that we might have something to learn here. And so I, I want to take and emphasize these three things. Be smart with money. Be generous with money. Be responsible. For two of these, we should emulate the manager, but with a different heart. And for the third, we need to do opposite of what the manager did. Let me read verses eight and nine. Because the last time we looked at this parable, as I say, in a, in a, in a kind of different, as part of a different series, I read verses eight and nine from the message which helped me a lot to get my head round it. So let me read this. Here's verse 8 and 9, Eugene Peterson. Now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager, and why? Well, because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this 
than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way. But for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not just complacently get by on good behavior. So the three things. First, be smart with money like the manager. Because if we're not smart with money, it's going to cause us problems. Let me highlight what that might mean or could mean for us. And I'm, I'm kind of speaking generally now rather than, than lifting it straight from here. But let, what does it mean to be smart with money for us? It means being careful. It means avoiding complacency in financial matters. It means avoiding waste or excessive spending simply because we can. That's not smart. Being smart with money involves living within our means. It's about steering away from a position where there's little margin or less and less, where we increasingly push the boat out even though we can't really afford to, where expenditure is, is kind of dangerously close in the heels of income. It's not smart. And if we're not alert to this, Something is going to happen, could happen to push us over the edge, and therefore we end up vulnerable when it comes to money. And being smart, and I realize there's lots of different scenarios we could highlight, but being smart with our money means or involves staying clear of unnecessary and debilitating debt. The kind of debt that creates major financial difficulties and challenges for individuals and their families, which is an increasing issue and problem in our society but it's not smart. It's not being shrewd. It's not being prudent. So look for ways to handle your money carefully, creatively, just like the shrewd manager did, only do it honestly. And if we are in trouble at whatever level, then seek help, seek advice. Don't allow things to get out of control, which you could argue, I know you could argue, is exactly what this Shrewd manager dead. He tried to make sure things didn't get out of control for him. So be smart. Be careful. Avoid complacency. Avoid waste, excessive spending. Live within your means. Avoid unnecessary debilitating debt. Secondly, be generous with money. Again, we can emulate the shrewd manager only in the right way. He was generous with his master's clients. He goes to one and just writes it half of it as debt off. You can only imagine how delighted they were with his last visit, as it turns out. For some of them, that could have been the difference between survival or going out of business. But the problem with this manager's generosity was that it, it wasn't his money to give away. It belonged to his master. Whereas for us, 
over and over again as we engage with God's word, we are encouraged to be generous people. To give voluntarily, to give cheerfully, to give sacrificially. But I want to suggest that it goes alongside being smart because if we are not smart, if we're not careful with money, then that is going to reduce our chances and our opportunities to be generous. One of the most fundamental ways to make sure that money doesn't become your master is through open-handed generosity where we give where we share our resources with others as and when we can. And as I say, that that is such a powerful biblical principle and value. Be generous. You've been given so much. Share it with others. Be open-handed. Be smart. Be generous. And then be responsible and be trustworthy with money. And maybe this is, maybe for some people who, who, who kind of want to identify just one main point out of parables. This is maybe the main point out of this particular parable. The manager clearly wasn't trustworthy before, which is why he lost his job in the first place, and he wasn't responsible and trustworthy during this parable as he gave away his master's assets. And that's why in verse 10, Jesus refers to him and implies he's dishonest. You see, the rich man had trusted this guy with his money and his possessions. And he hoped, as he trusted him with them, he hoped he would be loyal to him. But he wasn't. The manager, as it turned out, was only loyal to himself. And as a result of that, his relationship with his master was damaged. The manager realized, I'm about to find myself out on the street. I'm going to have to labor. I can't work hard. I'm too ashamed to beg. And so what he did is he he sought to make others loyal to him by doing them a favor, thinking, well, that, that that might work, it might not. And Jesus is saying, listen, do not be like that. Do you know why? You can only be loyal to one master. And then that's where that key verse comes in. In verse 13, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. In other words, you cannot serve God if your attitude to money is to see it as a goal in life, as an end in itself, which is exactly what the manager in this parable did, it seemed. And as a result, it ruined his relationship with his master. He had to fire him. He had to get rid of him. And money can deeply and negatively impact our relationship, not only with others, and it does. Money can have a devastating impact in the relationships and families and amongst friends and at business level, but also money can have a devastating impact on our relationship with our Father. Because wealth has the potential to entice us into what? Self-satisfaction, into selfishness, and into greed. And so we're called, serve God alone. Prove you can be trusted with the resources you've been given. Be good stewards, because all of us, that is who we all are. Anything we do have is ultimately God's. Prove yourselves to be good stewards, because if you can be trusted in this respect, then 
you'll also be trusted with true riches. Spiritual, eternal riches. And, and this is where Jesus takes this. And so he says, whoever can be trusted with very little will also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy, if you've been a good steward, if you've been responsible in handling money, worldly wealth, you will who will trust you with true riches, he asks. And so we need to be responsible with what has been given to us. And rather than focus on it, we need to retain our focus on God, our true master, and seek his kingdom first and use our resources accordingly so that, again, we are the ones handling what we have rather than allowing our money to handle us. And I said, the thing is, although Jesus told this parable directly to his disciples to teach them various things, he knew the Pharisees were listening in. And so it says in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money, they heard all this. And they were sneering at Jesus. You see, Jesus had rattled their cage. Jesus knew who they were serving. He exposed what was their true love, where their affections lay. And so he says in verse 15, you're the ones who justify your, yourselves in the eyes of others. And then this stinging phrase. But God knows your hearts. And the challenge for us when it comes to this whole issue of money and how we handle it and what we do with it is that God knows my heart. And so I want to suggest that we need to be smart with our money. Careful with it. We need to be generous, open-handed. And we need to be responsible, trustworthy people. And when it comes to a rule of life, when it comes to writing something into our rule of life regarding this subject, then the question is this. What am I going to do? What do I intend to do? What will I consistently do? What will become a kind of rhythm and pattern in my life? that reveals and shows and demonstrates that I'm smart with money, I'm generous with money, and I'm responsible with it. You cannot serve two masters.